Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall have rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you turn to the ground, for out of, out of you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she, she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife's garments of skins and clothed, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out of his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walk. The wonderful Nathaniel. Um, handsome, yes, thank you, I think so, well done. Oh, he's here, look at that, round of applause. If you'd like to get to know him, you need to come and buy a coffee in our cafe, uh, New Acre, Monday to Thursday, he'll, he'll be there 
And I know he would really appreciate that. Um, it's great. Let me just get myself set up. Well, hi. It's really great to see you. Uh, my name is Howard. I am the pastor here at Westminster Chapel. And everyone is truly welcome here. We're a church for people of all sorts of shapes, colors, and sizes. We really hope if you're here that you would experience a warm, welcoming Wonderful family, that is Westminster Chapel, a home from home, a place to truly belong in the heart of the city where so often people feel so lonely. This is an oasis for you. We believe that you will enjoy and discover. Well, you've joined us for week three in a series called The Bible. The Bible has been called by a historian as the world's history's most influential books. Why everybody needs to study it, to know all about it. We're going to be looking at uh, week three. And we have taken the 66 books that make up the Bible, written by more than 40 different authors, over a period of 1,500 years, and we have condensed that to you, for you, into just 12 verses. Now, actually, uh, next week you'll discover we've slightly cheated because it's two verses, but anyway, 12 installments of the Bible for you. And it's not just for your listening pleasure, it's that you might know Meaning, purpose, and acceptance in the ultimate way possible by playing your part in the story that shapes all of reality, the ultimate story. And so you've come today where we are facing possibly our hardest verse in the series, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And because it's a tough verse, and because many Christians would know this verse fairly well, I'm going to approach it slightly differently with a sort of Shakespearean poetic prologue. It's not in iambic pentameter or anything like that. But just so that you would see it anew and differently, and maybe, maybe fresh. So, here we go. A summary of what you've just heard read. Without the fall, how can we make sense of anything or at all? Without this story of original sin, there is no explaining the mess we are in. Those who are wise enough to dismiss the false promise of progress, how education, technology, and science have brought as much advance as regress. They can see, can you, that you'll only be disillusioned by humans if you continue to believe this progress myths. The problem is so much deeper than not knowing. It's like a bottomless pit, a selfish abyss. Humans enslaved in darkness to a power from the pit. A charming salesman selling feces. The answer is not his lies or our self-improvement. That begets only disillusionment. We need a deliverer, a savior to rescue us. Someone who knows our predicament and inside can represent us. But all humans are indebted. So it must also be an outsider who towers above us with love, mercy and grace. Who breaks the yoke of injustice. That's what we're looking at today. And we'll do it in two parts. The hard truth, and then we're going to look at the sweet hope. So part one, the hard truth. Are you willing to accept God's diagnosis of the situation? If you've ever been sick or ill, especially seriously, the thing that you want most, don't you, is an accurate assessment, a diagnosis. You want all the tests to be done. You want that full assessment to take place. You don't want the doctors or the NHS to skimp on anything that they would get to the bottom of what is really wrong with you so that they can ensure that you get an accurate diagnosis that will result in a 
good treatment that might even lead to a cure, right? That, that's true of all of us. But although we know that's what we need, quite often that's not what we want to hear. This happened for me a few years ago. I was having this terrible reflux problem, quite an extreme kind of reflux issue. It's causing me really intense pain. So I had a gastroscopy. If you don't know what that is, basically where they put a camera down your throat that makes you just want to gag absolutely nonstop so they can take pictures of what's going on in your esophagus down into your stomach. And I was going back to meet the consultant um, to discuss the results to see what they could do about this. Unfortunately, the consultant was away and I got his assistant and his assistant sent his assistant to get me weighed. And then they let me come into the room to hear the advice. This is pretty much what he said. I'm afraid there's nothing that we can do for you. Um, what you have is something called a sphincter ring of extra cartilage. It could be scar tissue that's inside your esophagus. And it's just going to close up from time to time. And it's going it's to feel like it's blocked up. But if we, if we did surgery, we might make it worse. We could cause further scarring. I'm afraid there's nothing that we can do for you. But there is something that you can do for yourself. Do you know that you are clinically overweight? stunned silence. I don't know how long it lasted. For me, it felt like forever. All sorts of thoughts were going in my head in this moment. Of like, did they take into account the fact that when they weighed me, I was wearing shoes in my clothes? That's a good few kilos that could come off for this BMI calculation. Maybe I'm okay. And then the slightly worse thought came as I was looking at this man who shared this with me of, you you're way more overweight than I am. Who do you think you are, right, telling me this? All I actually said was a very proud, passive-aggressive, oh, really? <laughs> that was it. And the truth, I needed to hear that at that time, you know, early stages of parenting, I had put on weight, and that was causing a problem. He was right. I just, I, I just didn't want to accept that fact. And I think that's how a lot of people feel about God's assessment of what's really wrong with the world. It's like denial. You don't want to go there. I don't want to hear this. Right? And people follow their animal spirit guide, the ostrich, and they bury their head in the proverbial sand. Denial. But denial doesn't really work if you've tried it. Don't, don't do that. But denial often gives way to something called disillusionment. And a great example of this is a man called C.E.M. Jode. He, um, you probably don't know him, but he was a celebrity um, atheist in the 20th century, uh, earlier part of the 20th century. Um, and he was famous. He was on, 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 on like the, the media and all that kind of stuff. He was a philosopher. But later in life, he actually renounced his atheism. He came back to faith. He wrote a book called The Recovery of Belief. And in it, he says this. A monumentally important insight. It is because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left were always being disillusioned by the behavior of both the people and the nations and politicians and by the recurrent fact of war. poignant. Another war breaking out. 
in the 21st century. You see, what he used to believe is what many people still believe today. They believe that the flaws within human beings, they are not um, fixed or hardwired into us. That they're externally created. They're not internally pre-existent. And therefore, they can be fixed by external changes through science and education and technology. But when war came, it exposed that there was a deeper problem, a problem in the human heart. And C.E.M. Jode had to admit that, to be honest, to his own philosophical convictions. was agreeing really with also the English writer G.K. Chesterton and it's reported that once there was a, a question put out by the English newspapers and they said, can anybody write in and help us answer this? The question is, what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton, brilliant English writer, he, he responds like this. He just writes, dear sirs, I am yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. We've had all these inventions, technology, like nuclear power, the internet. They're used for good, but they're still being used for evil. We've had all these decades of free education, primary school education, secondary school education, grant supports for education all over Europe, but it hasn't magically made people more moral. Evil continues. That's perhaps the big question. Evil continues. Why does evil continue in our world? That may be the hardest question, but also the most important question. Because it's often the question that holds people back from really trusting God, even come faith in Him. How could a good God allow suffering? Maybe you, you've got that question. Perhaps you're here in, in this congregation or you're watching online and you're wrestling with this as an issue. Well, let me take it at its highest. Let me go to to Stephen Fry, the broadcaster, the comedian, a very gifted and intelligent man. He was once interviewed in 2015, and he gave an extraordinarily passionate response when he was said, what would you like to say to God? If you could say something to God, what would you say? And he said this, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? Remember, he's talking to God. How dare you? How dare you create a world to which there is misery? That is not our fault. It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. He went on to talk about the horrors of an eyeball burrowing worm in children's eyes and things like that. Actually, it's a bit awkward because it's been proven that that worm doesn't exist. He sort of, there was this moment where he got carried away. There was an explosion of, of emotion in this atheist man to attack God and say he is absolutely evil. The very idea of him is absolutely and utterly evil. But when you point the finger at God, three fingers are pointing back at you, Right? By what standard is he judging God? Where does that come from, from the atheist worldview? Isn't it just about personal preference? Isn't it just your opinion, Mr. Fry? I, I, you know, you know, it might be like me saying, not really a fan of Jeeves and Worcester. It's just personal opinion. You were in it, but I'm not, I could take it or leave it. 
but it's not absolutely true for all people everywhere. Another atheist, Richard Dawkins, says that there's no such thing from an atheist point of view as evil and good. There's nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So how is atheist attacking God with such passion and energy to say this idea is absolutely evil, it's hypocrisy? There's another finger pointing back. It's not just that. The other issue is you're accusing God of not doing anything about justice in the world, but what are you doing? What are you doing about the injustices in the world? And it's more significant when you are fairly wealthy like Mr. Fry. Actually, he's in the top 1% of richest people in the world. What are you doing with your fortune? At the same time, around about the same time that he did that interview, there was a Christian. He's called Jimmy Carter. He set up a foundation. And he made massive progress to nearly eradicating the evil guinea worm <laughs> at that point in time. And today you can find out about it. He's nearly got rid of it completely. Him and his team and foundation, and they're being doing that because they believe in a God of justice who wants to help those in need. I'm saying that to make the point that when you accuse God of being immoral, you're kind of committing a hypocrisy, especially if you're an atheist. The Christian faith doesn't have a complete explanation for why there is evil and suffering in the world. But I would argue it has the best explanation. It's better than atheism. I hope you've seen that. I think it's better also than things like moralism. Moralism would say that that suffering in this life is because of some wrong, evil thing that you've done that could be pointed to. That's That's why you're suffering. But what about somebody who's born paralyzed? What do they do? They're just born that way. Hinduism, I think, actually uh, may try to address that kind of idea. And it says that your suffering in this life is to do with a, a previous version of you, which you can know nothing about, did in a previous life. And now you're suffering the karma of what they did. You can't know what they did. So you can't recorrect or change course. You just have to experience it. And if anybody tries to alleviate that, that suffering and karma, that's the, they're going to stop you from paying it off in this life. So it's going to continue into the next one and so on. It's just... Not nice. Or there's Buddhism. Buddhism simply says you're suffering, it's an illusion. Detach yourself from all emotion and feeling. That just leaves you horribly conflicted with reality. The Christian faith has the most complete and best explanation. But it begins hard before it becomes sweet. The hard truth is that we, we were duped. In that, I'm not saying that we're victims and so we're off the hook, but that we chose to believe the lies of someone who makes you know, Netflix's Tinder swindler look like Disney's Prince Charming, Satan. You see, I said we. No one is excluded from this. We, we, we're all included. What happened in Eden didn't stay in Eden. It got reenacted in all of our lives and continues to be reenacted many, many times over. We each grasp for our figurative fruit that is forbidden to us. We see it, we take it, and we eat it. We grasp to be equal with God. 
We grasp this right we think we have to be like God. We grasp to treat our own bodies and the people around us, planet, as if we are God. It's a little bit like this. Uh, if you made a car, a kit car in your garage, you are like God to it. You get to set how fast you drive it, where does it go, what do you do with it. You're in total control and authority over it. That is what we want of ourselves. We don't want to be the creature, we want to be the creator. And that is what Satan's temptation was right at the beginning. If you notice that, Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, he said that they will be like God. We all want to be like God. And we Christians, we can fall into this trap as well. We want to be so Christ-like to be like God that we forget the fact that many of his attributes are not communicable. That they're not meant to be ours. That he's all-knowing, we are not. That he is in us, that, that we are not. I often think that so much of our frustration, disappointment, irritation, anger, all those things come out of a wrong desire to try to be God rather than saying, I am human-sized. I am a creature. I am not God-sized. We all sinfully think that God isn't as good as He actually is. We all sinfully think we know better than God. We all sinfully desire things which we think are good for us, but they're not. It might be that's true forever. It might be that's just that we're impatient and we're grasping, grasping at things. It's quite possible that God would have let Adam and Eve eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil when they were ready. We're so impatient. We want to take. We want to take. And this is what Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is all about. Being duped into a war. God says, I will put enmity. That's war. I will put war between these two seeds. The seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. Those who side with Satan, the graspers, and those who side with God and his promises, the givers. Who, who are the seed of Satan? Does Satan give birth to people as well as God? The people can be born again. But what happens with Satan? Well, you're on Satan's side if, you, if you're a grasper. If you're acting as he would act. If you're believing in his lies. Jesus once said to the Jews who were opposing him, you are of your father, the devil. Religious people who were trying to obey the law, but they'd got it wrong. That they were of the seed, of the offspring of Satan because of the way that they were behaving. Now you see why I called this the hard truth, right? You're sat here thinking like, oh, <laughs> is he really saying this? Yeah. It's the hard truth, hard because many people are like, they don't want to believe that the devil exists. Got this anti-supernatural kind of philosophy that's behind that. It's hard because 
No one wants to really accept that you're on the wrong side, that you're fighting the wrong battles, that you've been duped, that the proverbial wool has been pulled over your eyes. I like to think of this as the moment in the Matrix film. Um, it's the first film in the Matrix because all the other sequels are just frankly terrible. Um, <laughs> um, and it's this big reveal moment. And there's this, the two main characters. You have Morpheus and Neo. And Morpheus, this character, is explaining to Neo that all of his life as he's known it up until this point hasn't been real. It's been fake. It's a computer simulation, a virtual reality construct. This is what he says. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being into this. And he holds up the D-cell battery. Batteries for artificial intelligence robots who rule the world. Now, we were not batteries. But we were pawns. We were pawns. Pawns on the earthen battlefield. That is Satan's chessboard. Believing his lies, doing his bidding, embracing his propaganda. Here's some of the stuff, you, you may, may know it, in his kind of war campaign is, if it feels good, do it. As if feelings are the ultimate arbiter of truth. Or, you are what you do. <laughs> and if what you do ain't great, then you are nothing. Rather than being flows first, and doing comes out of being. Or it's things like, live your best life now. Live your truth. Or if you only had this money, job, ear, sex, power, influence, fame, this, this love going on in your life, if you only had this, then your life would be happy. And so your life is permanently on hold until that thing comes, and it's always just about far enough away from you so you can never actually grasp hold of it. Here's another popular one. Don't do it for your parents. Don't do it for your boss. Don't do it for your partner. Do it for yourself. Anybody heard that or been given that advice? So intrinsically selfish, but so masked as being nice and wise. I don't have time to explain why I think all of those are lies, but you just have to trust me on it. There is this propaganda that we're following that we can get caught up in. But I said were. We were pawns. And that's really important because those of us who were in that situation are able to recognize that that's what life was like for me. Before I met Jesus, I was under his influence. I did believe those things. Now I am not. And we know that because we've been made spiritually alive. Dead people don't know that. Dead people don't know that they're dead. Maybe I'll say that again. Spiritually dead people don't know that they're dead. If you need further explanation on that, please watch the film The Sixth Sense, uh, and it will make sense to you. But it's a really important point. If you want to argue about, I was never a pawn, how dare you say that? It may be a sign that you're not spiritually alive. Maybe a sign that you don't know how lost you were. Another 
piece of evidence really comes from our own experience that the Bible's account sort of proves true. It's our experience, isn't it, that we spend most of our lives to cover up flaws. We want to hide the imperfections that we know we have deep inside. A bit like Adam and Eve, the moment that they disobeyed God, they go into hiding and then they try and cover themselves up with fig leaves. Very inadequate, you know, total failure. God has to make for them clothes, which are actually going to work. But they're going to try fig leaves to cover up flaws that they know they have, that sense of shame and wrongdoing and dirtiness. How do we do that? Well, in a busy city like London, achievement would be one of the main ways. It'd be through achievement, producing. I'm going to try and cover myself up by doing well in this or that, in work, in life. And I want to achieve. That's our fig leaves. But as we press into this achievement goal, we often neglect the fact that we want to achieve to get the promotion. But if we get the promotion, somebody else doesn't. We want to, you know, get the money and earn the great career so we can be impressive and show that to others with our clothes and wear luxury, you know, the DM boots and the great outfits and you know the slightly disheveled Nike trousers and all that's become cool and all of that. But we neglect the fact that somebody didn't get paid fairly to make them one. Or, you know, we have our wonderful technology, our latest gadget, the smartphone, the iPad, whatever it is. We get that achievement, but we neglect the fact that there's a very high probability that a child in slave labor conditions in the DRC had to go down a mine to get the cobalt out so that you could enjoy that luxury. What's wrong with the world? I am. I am. Can you accept God's diagnosis? Are you going to be like me? Proud, passive, aggressive response to being called fat. (laughs) And that's actually what I needed to hear. That was the first point, the hard truth. The second point is the sweet hope. The sweet hope. Is it your unshakable confidence? What hope is there? in light of this terrifying diagnosis, well, it immediately comes, it's God. Of course it's God. And it's three wonderful words. Will, shall, shall. Do they hit you yet? Are you too familiar with them? The absolute certainty, the irresistible power of these words that they cannot be undone, the, the authority of them where God says he will, he shall, he shall. He will, God will raise up a seed. He's saying, I will crush Satan. Satan will be mortally wounded. Wow. The entire story of the Bible is the outworking of God's faithfulness to this promise. And right at the outset, he says, there's going to be a war. Good versus evil. And right at the outset, he's encouraging us by saying, I will win. I am triumphant. But the question this passage creates in the text immediately is, who could be this seed or seeds? Who, who could do that? The best of humanity, Adam and Eve, they've just failed. Who's going to do that? And so the rest of history is actually the telling of the story of the battle going on between these seats. 
So we've got the history in the history books. There's that sort of version of history. But the true story of history is this story, is the battle. It's Abel versus cold-blooded killer Cain. It's Noah versus all those who would mock and ridicule him and call him an absolute fool for building an ark when there's no rain. It's Abraham and his offspring growing into a nation to be persecuted and attacked by other nations and from evil within. It's this story that the Bible is telling. That's the ultimate story of history. That's the truest of all realities that we face. And in this story, there come moments of triumph, but moments of terrible despair. When it feels like there's no hope, it's absolute darkness. People don't know what to do. They feel like they're giving up. And then God sends a prophet. And the prophet comes and he explains, this is why this is happening. But true believer, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. There is a serpent crushing seed who is coming. All wrongs will be righted. All evil will be undone. Maybe you feel that way right now. Maybe you look at the news or you just know your own circumstances of your life. You feel without hope. Let me remind you, there was a period in history where there was 400 years of silence where God didn't come and speak through a prophet. And it looked so bleak, so hopeless, as the evil Roman Empire would come and they would conquer Jerusalem. Where's God? What was he doing? But the scriptures simply tell us that that was the unveiling of the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, in that time, in the eleventh hour, there was one. There was one who would be born. Not of any woman, but of a virgin woman, because he was a holy seed. And the battle would intensify as the seed of Satan would come in King Herod to try and kill this holy seed in his infancy. So they would have to escape over to Egypt. And then as Jesus, the holy seed, would grow up, there would be one, another seed of Satan, Judas, who would come to try and topple him, who ultimately would result in Jesus going to the cross. And this great battle was climaxing. That Jesus is the holy seed. He wasn't dying for his own sins. He was dying for ours. He was dying to pay the penalty for your part, uh, your part in this, this whole problem. The fact that, that the I amness of it, that you are part of the problem. He's dying to cleanse you from that, to forgive you for that. So he can have fellowship. So there's no blockage of your sin between him and you anymore. Jesus is dying on the cross and he's using Satan's very weapon against him of death to overcome death. And to defeat it forever in triumph and glory. To strip Satan naked. To expose his utter powerless. You think you're bringing an end to me. I tell you, through those very actions, I'm conquering and overcoming all of evil death. And this victory doesn't stop there. It continues in the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit upon his people, the church. As we give authority to put our feet upon Satan's mortal wound, to make him hurt, to make him flee from us, as we act out the authority of what Christ has done for us, you cannot stand against us. This is what Romans 16 verse 20 is all about. 
the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's for the church. This is what happens. This is why we gather. We're an outpost of of doing this as we worship, as we love one another, as we support one another, as we go forth and and witness of, of God's love to this world. We are coming together to crush Satan under our feet, to show the power and victory of God over and against him. That's what we're about. That's what we're about today. That's what we're doing today. We come together to celebrate the fact we're not pawns. We're God's people. We have an enemy, but he's been defeated, and ultimately one day he will be destroyed in the lake of fire. And until that day, we will seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. There is a day coming when all deception will end. It will be no more. And until that day, our call is to break the evil enchantment of demonic lies, this spell that has come upon so many people. How do we do that? We do that by speaking and proclaiming the truth. The truth we're talking about in this series, because the truth will set people free. It cannot be resisted. It shall come to pass. The ultimate blow has been already struck. We are simply outworking God's victory with the encouragement of history that he is faithful to this promise. He never forgot it. He worked it out all the way through this moment, this moment, this moment. He is faithful to that promise. He is sovereign and in control over all history. He has a good plan. He is a God of good providence for us. And this is our assurance. If you feel with all of the chaos of war that is out there, You're struggling to sleep. You're struggling to find rest. You're struggling to find peace. Let this doctrine of the sovereignty of God, he is in control, be the pillow upon which you rest your head. All things, always work for the good of those who love God. His will cannot be thwarted. His ways cannot be overcome. This is the great encouragement, but it's not just a pillow. It should also be our parachute. This assurance of heavenly salvation, of victory over evil, that we are safe and secure. If you trust Christ, if you're on his side, if you've trusted, you believed in faith in him, then then you're safe. No matter what happens to you, you're safe. We live for that. We live for our eternal rest. And it's like a parachute to us. We're on board the aeroplane of life. And people are jumping out of this aeroplane. They're being tricked. They're walking out of it like lemmings. They're falling. They're falling to their ultimate deaths. They don't even have some idea that that's what's happening. They're falling. They're not wearing a parachute. They have no hope of survival. Their trajectory is towards hell and eternal destruction forever. But you're wearing a parachute on board this aeroplane. You know that if you jump out of that aeroplane, you're going to be safe. This is this great truth that you can jump out of that airplane. You can do that bullet dive. You can grab hold of those that God puts in your path and you can share with them the good news about Jesus and you can pull the ripcord and you together can go to safety in eternal life and glory. Taking extraordinary risks for the glory of Christ because we know we are safe because we're his. This great truth, this hope, it's a pillow 
It's also a parachute. And throughout history, that's what it's been for the church, for the people of God. There was a time of great darkness, of horrendous racial injustice. When black people were terribly oppressed. But they never lost their hope. And they wrote songs about it. Songs that teach us, that help us to know how do you find strength to persevere through times of trial and great difficulty. One particular song I want to read to you now, part of, is called We Shall Overcome. You'll probably know it. It's famous as the anthem of the civil rights movement. It's an anthem against evil. It's an anthem against racism. But its foundational hope is the hope we've been talking about. The victory of Christ. We shall overcome. We shall overcome someday. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome someday. But how? By what power? Is it us? No, the Lord will see us through. The Lord will see us through. The Lord will see us through someday. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe the Lord will see us through someday. We're on to victory. We're on to victory. We are on to victory someday. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe we're on to victory someday. We'll walk hand in hand. We'll walk hand in hand. This is the unity that only can come through Christ. Black and white. Ukrainian and Russian, Israeli and Palestinian, Jew and Gentile, humans with God will walk hand in hand someday. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe, we'll walk hand in hand someday. We are not afraid. We are not afraid. We are not afraid today. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe, we are not afraid today. Because we have this certain hope, this assurance that nothing can separate us from the love of God. He has bought us with his shed blood. We are his people. We are safe. We are on to glory. It's absolutely certain. Our rest eternally awaits us. And the call is then, how will we work? for love, justice, and mercy until he brings us home. How will you do that? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for your goodness your grace to us. Lord, as war breaks out, Lord, we recognize that we have already been in a war, that there has been a war going on almost since the beginning of creation on this planet. Forgive us for neglecting that. Forgive us for not seeing that. Give us spiritual eyes to see what you're really doing in this world and help us all to play our part. Lord, I pray even now that you might move people out of darkness and into light, that they might come out of believing lies to believe the truth. Lord, and use us, use each one of us. Let these truths that you will overcome, that you have overcome, give us assurance, give us peace, give us joy, give us hope, give us life. 
and send us out with power and authority to proclaim the name of Jesus, that we might see a great harvest in our time and day. Amen. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.